Some people love drama so much that they could start an argument in an empty house. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. Shit show nation. I don't think I've done that in a while. I'm sure several several of y'all were hoping that um that I had, had forgot about that. No, I haven't. Shit show nation. Uh, for any new listeners, my name is Andrea. I am a total shit show, and I am reporting live from a, a a tiny ass closet. I am sitting on top of a suitcase that is stacked on top of several cardboard boxes, recording this on my cell phone. So this is a very um very professional podcast we have going on here. So today we are diving deep into our addiction to excitement, our addiction to fear. And I am chatting with Dr. Scott Lyons. So he is a holistic psychologist. He is a somatic practitioner, and he is the author of the newly published book, Addicted to to Drama, Healing Dependency on Crisis and Chaos in Yourself and Others. And boy, is this very relevant to us should show adult children. So let's talk about laundry list trait eight. We became addicted addicted to excitement. Well, first, I guess I should say, if there's anybody who's listening to this right now that doesn't know what the hell the laundry list is, so these are the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. Uh, this comes from the 12-step program, ACA. And the first time I read this, I about shit my pants. And I think that that is the experience of of many of y'all listening. So if you have not read that list, stop what you're doing, go look in the show notes and you will find the laundry list there. But so trait eight is we became addicted to excitement. So here's the deal. When you grow up in a dysfunctional family, when you grow up in a home where you had to walk on eggshells, where you never knew what to expect from one moment to the next, when you were constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop, fear becomes our base operating system. Feeling fear feels safer than actually feeling safe. So we start arguments, we spend recklessly, we don't pay our bills, we overcommit ourselves, we procrastinate, we are always running late, we find ourselves in toxic relationships. These are just some of the many ways that we manifest fear into our lives. Now, why would we want to do that? right? Like fear sucks. It's not a pleasurable experience by any stretch of the imagination, but it is what we know. It is uncomfortably comfortable. And when things are going well, when things are peaceful, when things are calm, that makes us feel so damn uneasy because that is not our experience. I want to read to you this passage from the Big Red Book. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the whole entire book. If you don't know what the uh, the Big Red Book is, so that is the primary text of the 12-step program ACA. You need to read this shit. This is required reading. But so what it says is uh, when ACA founder Tony A wrote this trait, he originally stated, we became addicted to fear, but changed the wording to addicted to excitement for clarity. Either way, excitement or fear, adult children use both to mimic the feeling of being alive when in reality, they are recreating a scene from their family of origin. Gossip, dramatic scenes, pending financial failure, or failing health are often the turmoil that adult children create in their lives to feel connected to reality. While such behavior is rarely stated as such, these behaviors are an addiction to excitement or fear. Because we were raised in chaotic or controlling homes, our internal compass is oriented toward excitement, pain, and shame. This inner world can be described as an inside drugstore. The shelves are stocked with bottles of excitement, toxic shame, self-hate, 
self-doubt and stress. Other shelves include canisters of lust, fear, and worry. As odd as it sounds, we can seek out situations so we can experience a hit of one of these inner drugs. We can create chaos to feel excitement or we procrastinate on the job to feel stress. Before ACA, we picked relationships that triggered our childhood unrest because it felt normal to be upset, persecuted, or shamed. During these moments, we thought we felt alive with excitement, but in reality, we were staying just ahead of our aching childhood. Our actions as adults represent our addiction to excitement and a variety of inner drugs created to survive childhood. Many of our repressed feelings have actually been changed into inner drugs that drive us to harm ourselves or others. Without help, we cannot recognize serenity or true safety. Because our homes were never consistently safe or settled, we have no true reference point for these states of being. So I've shared several times on the podcast about how I feel like my first addiction was to the chaos and dysfunction that was going on in my home. And I remember just sitting on the steps late at night as a little girl listening to my parents argue and literally getting an adrenaline rush from it, like literally getting a hit from listening to them argue. And I I found it all to be like very exciting. Like I found being my dad's sidekick and emotional confidant and, and helping him search the house for my mom's booze. I found that to be all very exciting. And, you know, I even remember a few times, you know, we we developed this sort of intuition, right? Like when we know that things are going to, things are going to be going down in the family that day. Uh, and 95% of the time, I think we're accurate in it. But I remember that there was a few times that I had that intuition and actually being kind of bummed out when it didn't happen. It was like, I didn't get my fix. So I found this really good article that I will include in the show notes. It comes from the SoCal ACA website. It's titled uh, Addiction to Excitement, Inner Drugstore 101. And one of the things that it talks about is how we really can become addicted to anything and that anything that serves as a distraction that allows us to distract from our feelings from our thoughts, from reality, is something that we can become addicted to. And how it really is less about like what it is and more about, you know, why we do it. What are we getting out of this? And that that's a big thing with my therapist. If there is some sort of, you know, behavior that I am engaging in that is destructive, that I don't want to do, I know I shouldn't be doing, but I'm still doing it. It's looking at what's the payoff here? Like, what am I getting from this? Because clearly, I'm getting something out of engaging in this behavior. Doesn't mean that that's necessarily necessarily a um, a rational thought process, but it's filling some sort of of need or, you know, or serving as a distraction from my own reality. Now, I will say that I've made great strides in, in stopping some of these, um, some of these behaviors, but, you know, I still struggle with this today, like procrastination. Hello, folks, it's 10 o'clock at night, 1045 at night, (laughs) when I'm gonna drop this episode and like, uh, seven hours or whatever and I'm fucking recording it now and that is my damn addiction to excitement right it's this procrastination and I get I put it off I put it off here I am recording this late half brain dead because I'm just trying to get a hit of one of these stupid chemicals these stupid inner drugs that just make me not feel so great now I'm not beating the shit out of myself don't worry but you know, I still do it. Like this is a way that I am creating chaos and unmanageability is is through procrastinating. And and I talked about that some last week on the podcast. Um, You know, the other thing that I want to note, note here too, is that, you know, we have this addiction to fear and excitement, but then that's also coupled with 
these faulty limiting beliefs that we hold about ourselves. And so it kind of becomes just this self-fulfilling prophecy of we get drawn into our, our fear of our, our addiction to excitement, our addiction to fear draws us subconsciously into certain situations that then give us a hit of these of these inner drugs, these not so pleasant inner drugs, which in turn further ingrain um, the, the faulty limiting beliefs that we hold about ourselves, that we are inherently flawed, that we are unlovable, which in turn feeds our addiction to fear and chaos. And so it's just this cycle that we find ourselves in that most of us have no clue that that is what's going on. And I think that was one of the most mind-blowing things for me. The realization, reading reading actually that the, what I just read to y'all, that passage was, you know, it wasn't just that like my picker was broken and that I was um, attracted to certain romantic partners due to my upbringing, but that also I was picking people that were going to give me a hit of one of these inner drugs that feel like shit, but that are my norm. What I would equate this to is that, you know, when I was in the eighth grade, uh, my mom was taking me to the hospital every week to get drug tested. And uh, so I had to figure out ways that I could get high that wouldn't show up on a drug test. So I would take like 12 Benadryl. Uh, I would take you know, a whole bottle of, of Dramamine, I would drink cough syrup, and the the high from these over-the-counter medications were not pleasurable in, in the slightest. Like, there was absolutely nothing euphoric, folks. <laughs> Let me tell you, from taking, like, like, 12 Benadryl, it was actually quite miserable. But, um, like, what what was the payoff here? Well, the payoff was that I still was disconnected from reality. Being miserably high was better than being in my own skin. And so I think that that correlates to this whole um, addicted to excitement, addicted to fear, is that it really is just serving as a way for us to distract from our inner experience. So let's get the damn show on the road, folks. But first, let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. So this is my online community where I host weekly Zoom support groups with a bunch of amazing shit shows who are doing the damn work to heal. Uh, tell me if this sounds like you. I don't have anyone in my life that understands the way that I feel that can relate to me. Uh, I don't have anyone in my life that I feel is safe for me to share with. I have been trying to do this whole healing journey on my own and I realize that I actually need support from from others that are also on the same journey as me. I just found out that my childhood screwed me up a whole hell of a lot more than I thought it did, and I'm not sure what the hell to do about that. If any of those apply to you, how about you damn the join shit show? Please see the, the link in, in the show notes to join. Again, this is relational trauma. We have to heal this through safe relationships, and this community is, is a space where you can find that. Next! How about you give me a little follow on the Insta, on the TikTok, and last but not least, whatever you do, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple, on Spotify. Thank you. Love you all. Welcome to Prime Video's Culture Rated Collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by 
about buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. All right, y'all. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Scott Lyons. He is the author of Addicted to Drama. He also, I've just learned, is has been frequently stalked. He has even received a wedding and honeymoon album that he was not present at, but is thoroughly enjoyed it by the looks of the pictures, right? Yeah, my photos were photoshopped in and I uh, had a whole honeymoon and wedding that I I wasn't even Wow. Where was the ceremony and where was the reception? You know, the honeymoon was somewhere tropical. Okay, good. I couldn't tell the exact location from (laughs) from the generic photos of the beaches and the sunsets. But I would say it was definitely like, you know, of my of all my weddings and honeymoons, I would say that that was certainly one of the prettiest that unfortunately I just wasn't there for. <laughs> Did you have many groomsmen? Was there a bridal party? You know, I think I looked through it twice and I don't remember. I hope you saved it. What? I thought about it and I held on to it for about a year. And then when I moved from that location, so they no longer had my address, I decided to let it go. I Marie Kondo'd it. It did not bring me joy. Okay, well, I hope they're listening right now. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just make sure if you're going to do that again, make sure you send the the air fryer that you guys really wanted. I know. I just had to order a new air fryer. It sucks when someone creates (laughs) a honeymoon and a wedding for you and you don't get the prizes. No shit. Right? Just the pics. Just the What about, did you like the suit that you were wearing at least? I don't even remember that part of it. I know. Uh, There was so much going on that day. It's hard to remember what you were wearing. I imagine it was Prada. I would hope that they would dress me up in some type of couture. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I demand couture if I'm going to be photoshopped into a honeymoon or whatever. Oh, Absolutely. So are you familiar with the term adult child? I am. Yeah. You are. Okay. Yeah. 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 Would you consider yourself one? I would say, ooh, oof. You know, the word adult is new for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say I'm I'm not yet considered an adult child. I really resonate with child still growing up. Mm-hmm. But I am familiar with adult child from the Al-Anon circles and AA and all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, and we'll get into this, but so the laundry list are the common characteristics of an adult child. And one of them is we become addicted to excitement. Oh. And initially it was going to be we became addicted to fear. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But they changed it to we became addicted to excitement. And, you know, one way that I've seen that show up for me. I mean, there's many ways, but like in a more voyeuristic way mm-hmm. is whenever I see something going down, like on this, like if there's like police activity or especially like living in San Francisco. Yeah. I mean, I remember this one time I was in an AA meeting in the Castro. Mm-hmm. I heard all of these signs, like and there was something going on. I was the only one in the damn meeting that did this, but I got up and I left and I walked out there and I watched. And it did it bring you the excitement? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was like a good one. Did it feel like a, a hit, that satisfaction? I don't know if it, yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely got a little something-something from it. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, excitement, the stirring, the stress. However, what you know, it's the same biological mechanism, whatever we want to call it, whether it's like, you know, whether we 
overschedule ourselves mm-hmm. or we go follow a siren or we get into a fight with a friend or we start trolling the internet or whatever the mechanism is, it, whatever the device is rather, that's the same biological mechanism. It's that excitement. It's that arousal response in our nervous system that we're getting kind of hooked on. So before we get into all that, I want to hear more about your upbringing. My upbringing. Yeah. My upbringing, I would say I grew up in both a loving and very chaotic household. Mm -hmm. And so consistency was not the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I was very much had a lot of learning disabilities and was very disconnected from myself. I used to refer to myself as like a walking ghost and very dissociated and had a hard time connecting with other people. And, you know, it it took me until I was in my 20s to realize, oh, that's actually more of a trauma response. Like, you know, we had all these diagnoses as a kid, but really... It was these ways in which my attention, my energy was being so misdirected that it manifested as these things like ADHD, learning disabilities. But really, it was that misdirection of energy or that lack of conservation of energy was the inability to maintain homeostasis, was the inability to maintain balance in my own being because I was holding such an enormous amount of trauma, birth trauma, generational trauma, early developmental trauma, you know, and and I'm not saying these things as like a trauma Olympics, like, hey, look at all the gold medals I got of trauma. It, it's more of saying like, fuck, there was a lot going on. And there, as me as a human, like any other human can only hold so much. And then there are consequences. And unfortunately, sometimes we look at the consequences and diagnose that as yep, opposed yep. to following it to the root. Yeah, we're looking at symptoms. Yeah, we're looking and at trying to treat symptoms. So yeah. two questions. So did your mother share with you about birth trauma? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was pretty obvious because she was in the hospital when I was born. They ruptured her her disc and her spine upon birth. So it was a pretty like the, the whole birth process was pretty narrowly. They had induced labor. It didn't work. Then there was a whole complication. They had to stop the labor, then induce it again. And it was just, it was kind of a shit show. It was the chaos that I then internalized and became as a As child, a human being. As a yeah. human being, yeah. And then what about the generational trauma? Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of other forms of addiction in my family. And you know, there was a lot of filling the void, so to speak, mm-hmm. with a lot of things, including drama, like, it was something that was actually modeled, not necessarily just in my parents, but in my aunts and uncles and cousins. It was just like the, in some in particular would just chase and create and catastrophize. And that was the ecosystem that there was always something. There mm-hmm. was always something wrong. There was always something against them. And that was, you know, and that's the environment you grow up in. You absorb it like a sponge. That is the belief system you even start to like their perception, their very skewed perception of reality in the world that is in response to their own traumas, you start to believe because they project that reality into the ecosystem you're growing up in. Mm-hmm. Was there an understanding as a kid that things were dysfunctional? No, yeah. no. I mean, it, you know, certainly when you know the authorities were called in at times, you know, that was a reflection. But, you know, we normalize. Yeah. That's what we do. You don't know, you know anything like, different. I didn't know, like, you know, you parents will yell at you and then two seconds later demand a group hug. Like, I just assume, like, fast, fast repairs that weren't actually repairs were normal. And big, you know, big mood swings were normal. Unpredictable, violent behavior was normal. Like, you know, again... I'm not talking just about my parents. Like, this is the family system at large that I grew up in. And I think it's probably not until college. It wasn't until college where I started hearing other people's lives. And I was like, oh, wait, I don't think mine is like yours. Mm -hmm. And I saw that with other friends, too, that when we were comparing our early life histories, 
each of us had this sort of insight of going, oh, we really normalized whatever it is we grew up in. Do you have siblings? I do. I have a sister. And what role do you think you played in your home? Like, were you the lost child? You know, it's funny. My sister and I are are quite close, but could not be more opposite in a lot of Mm. ways. And I, I even write in the book, you know, when you grow up in a family of chaos, you kind of have two choices. You join the chaos and you feed off of it. You become part of the mechanism that that is the chaos or you collapse to it. And I internalized it. I sought it out. I fed off of it. I used it as a battery pack for my energy of life. And my sister went into more of the collapse. She would hide a lot. She would literally hide in bathrooms when there was conflict. Wow. Or I would be like, oh, there's conflict. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Or like, I can manage this. I'm so good at managing it. But really, I was contributing to it by enabling it through my management. And yeah, we have an ongoing joke of like when something's a little tense, usually not between us, but like when something's tense, I'll be like, are you in the bathroom? You know, like I'll check in with her and like that's our our little keyword. In the bathroom. So what do you feel like were some of your earlier coping mechanisms like as a teenager i mean i was in the arts and so like it's such a you know i loved the drama and i wouldn't again it was so normalized that i wouldn't have even recognized like oh i love the stress like going in front of and performing in front of a thousand people where anything could go wrong it's high stakes like it's a mortifying if you fuck up and and it's this exhilarating stress response that is is present all the time. And, you know, we don't think of stress as typically anything but like the big bad monster in the closet. But stress does a lot of great things, including it creates pain relief. Like look at when you go running, for example, right? You're creating a stress on the body. You're creating more of an activation response. Mm -hmm. And you get that sort of like high, you get that pain relief. And that's the same because you're inducing a stress response in the body. And so like high stakes experiences can help numb pain. It's pretty awesome. We either have, we have two major mechanisms in our physiology that does that sort of numbing of pain. It's a stress response and it's bonding and love. And when you grow up and bonding and love feel dangerous because of the vulnerability that comes with it, guess which one pain relief mechanism you're going to default to? the stress response. So you're going to become dependent on it. You get both a high, it's literally an energy release in your body and a pain relief. And so then when, well, first of all, I love from drag queen to (laughs) psychologist, that's like me. I'm like CPA to podcaster. Yeah, yeah. But how did things start to unfold as far as what was your journey of, okay, let's say this. When you graduated high school, if somebody had asked you, how, did you experience trauma? What would your answer have been? Yeah. I mean, I knew it also like I was, I had to leave a high school because I was getting beat up all the time. I mm. was being, I had such severe learning disabilities that like the teachers would make fun of me in front of all the other students. It was a pretty fucked up situation. Were so, you like, present for that? Like, do you remember, like, because so for me, for example, mm-hmm. like yeah. I became the school slut in the seventh grade, teased on a daily basis. I don't remember, for me, I kind of leaned into it in a way. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and really that shell was really built up around me mm-hmm. that I don't remember it being like a particularly like painful experience just because I had to dissociate so hard. What was that experience for you? Like, were you very present for that or extremely disconnected? I think, you know, everything was still fuzzy. Yeah. Like, and my brain always felt fuzzy. I felt as a kid, I kept saying to my parents, like, I'm a walking ghost. I, I don't feel dimensional. I didn't have the language of, you know, saying disassociation. I, I just kept saying things like that. So there's mm-hmm. a fuzziness of a lot of those early years. But it was certainly like I remember being mortified. I remember being like hiding. I remember You know, I was in such pain that I even faked a suicide attempt to get Mm -hmm. out of being in high school. I felt like everyone was against me. So I set up this whole, you know, I write about this in the book. I I set up this whole scene. Like I I didn't know how to get 
help. And I wanted also people to feel the pain I was feeling, which is called weaponized empathy. And so like I set the scene, so to speak. I laid pills on the ground. I wrote this letter. I made sure there was some blood on the floor, you know, like pretty some, a very violent scene that wasn't actually what I did. I was the setup, the conditions so that they would find me, that they would feel bad. That was my hope because I, I didn't Yeah, well, what was like to... the long-term plan? Were you like standing- I didn't standing know how to at... get through to people. Yeah, I know. Being you like know? in the closet and then you're like, son. <laughs> no, no, I was lying on the floor. Yeah, oh, yeah. you were, okay. Oh, you oh, were gonna yeah. be there. Okay, okay. Oh, I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the whole setup. And you know, like I remember talking about it for the first time on a podcast maybe a year ago and I was even talking about it then I was mortified that I did that. I, I wrote about it, but I never really talked about it much out loud. And I think now at this point, I'm like, look, that was my survival mechanism. Mm -hmm. I had no idea how to get people's attention to to survive. Mm -hmm. I, I I got people's attention in these these massive ways to sur have survived all this time. But I didn't know how to say, hey, I, I'm being hurt. I'm literally being shoved into lockers and punched all the time, you know, and people I, like I did share that information and people didn't believe me, you know, like at what decibel do we all have to scream at to finally be heard? And then that becomes our normal, you know, like if you grow up in a family of chaos to, to be heard above the, the crisis that is constantly there, you have to be extraordinarily big. You have to be extraordinarily loud. And the bigness and the volume to which you exist in seems to be performative to other people. But for you, for me, it was the decibel, it was the volume, it was the size, it was the shape of behavior and action that I felt was absolutely necessary in order to possibly be heard and not abandoned. And so would you say, was there a particularly pivotal moment for you where you truly I guess, realize the, the severity, the magnitude of what you had endured. I think it, it was titrated over time. You know, there, there's a thing about when you have kind of compound stresses or, or per pervasive trauma. It's like it's, it sits in layers. It's not going to all necessarily come out at one mm -hmm. time. And so like, you know, years of doing trauma therapy and somatics and embodiment practices really help peel the layers of that. And, you know, it was never for me, like going back and going, what was me? Like, it was never part of my personality. It was more of like, ooh, how nice I got to take that load off my back. Or like, ooh, I just feel that much more free. Or I feel that much more dimensional. And I was really appreciative of that, of just feeling like, you know, the thing about addiction and the model I work with in addiction is like, addiction is about filling a void, right? And when we have trauma, the ways in which we evolutionarily have survived or have developed to survive is to disassociate, to disconnect, to literally vacate or leave ourselves, which leaves a void. So we fill the void with whatever we can, whether it's alcohol or drugs or stress, whatever works to numb it out, to seal it up. But the problem is, is we keep having to refill that to shove things in that void that really that what should be in that void is us, the parts of us that had to disconnect. And that's the real work for me is going not only navigating the dependency of going, okay, what, who am I? How am I if I didn't fill the void with this anymore? And then once we can make enough space where it's not reflexive anymore, then we can start to go, oh, what would it be like for me to come back home to myself, for me to fill the void instead of the drugs or the alcohol or the drama? How do you define drama? I, I define drama as the unnecessary turmoil that is exaggerated and intensified beyond what is actually needed. It is the, you know, it's the ways in which we are not coordinating the amount of energy and attention and emotion that is actually needed to functionally adapt. And in that, the exaggerated, the intensification, the catastrophication is all part of this way in which we are managing a dysfunctional system. 
we're not able to truly measure what is needed in life to truly be present and functionally adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one thing that I think is crazy is when I think yeah. about, yeah, I like the word chaos. Like, for example, you you need to make a dentist appointment or you need to pay a bill and how literally it's not a conscious choice to avoid doing it throughout the day and just how mm-hmm. insidious it is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just how insidiously we create stress in our way yeah the ways we interrupt our own peace or the ways we just create these and it's not like a conscious creation it never really is it's like you know it it can seem like a flakiness even like i I know exactly what you mean like i once i went to a therapist years ago and she said what would you like to work on and i said i can't mail a letter Mm -hmm. she's like what do you mean you can't mail a letter can you put a stamp on it it's like i can She's like, can you get to the mailbox? I was like, I can. I was like, but I don't. And I I can go write a dissertation. I can go direct an opera. I can go teach a course at a university and organize it and be in front of thousands of people, but I can't mail a letter. Mm -hmm. And it was because it didn't have the risk factor. It didn't have the stress factor enough for me to organize around it. Mm. And instead, what it did is it was something so mundane that I that it was boring. I couldn't organize around boring. I could organize around chaos. Yeah, because for me, I feel like when I do it, it's I mean, mailing a letter. Well, I guess it depends on what it is. But for me, I think it's the unconscious creation of unmanageability. Yeah. I mean, there's also like the procrastination part, which then creates more of a thrill too. like the procrastination that like, oh, you know, if we find ourselves always working at the deadline or creating or somehow procrastinating until it creates enough energy mm-hmm. slash stress to get us over to do it, you know, and then we're reliant on that intensity to function in the world. When did you come to view this and see this as having an addiction to drama? I think it was when I was in the process of a big breakup and it was my first relationship and my first breakup and I was a fucking mess. And that relationship was such chaos. It was constant fighting. It was with someone who was very dysfunctional had addictions, lied a lot, cheated a lot. And I would break up and then go right back. And then there was makeup sex. And, you know, like it was a fucking roller coaster. And I realized at a certain point that I missed the roller coaster more than I missed the individual when we broke up, that I was craving it. And I would find other ways. That's huge that you could have that realization. Well, I was picking fights with my poor sister and my family (laughs) when all they were doing was taking care of me when I couldn't get off the fucking, you know, couch because I was crying all the time and I would pick fights with them or I would feel better when I would text my ex and we would talk a little bit and or I would feel better in watching Kill Bill or some like super violent, intense movie. And I was like, whoa, why can't I just feel better with a little bit of peace? Mm. And that that was the question that I started to like really contemplate. I was like, am I avoiding peace? Mm. Am I? And what I came to more recognize was, no, I'm allergic to it. I had some reflexive thing in my body that the moment I start to settle where there's ease or comfort or peace or stillness, that I suddenly hit this shelf that I called it. And suddenly I would go seek or create the challenges or I would go find someone to fight with unintentionally or I would go gossip or be involved in someone's gossip or I would go doom scrolling on the internet like things that were absolutely counter to the idea of peace and yet I would always say I just want peace I just want ease why can't I have ease in my fucking life you know and not realizing that I was the one preventing me from it Mm -hmm. and it's such a common thing for so many of us, like, why is it that we're sitting in a bathtub or we're in a garden or in these environments that could be supportive and luxurious and restful? And all of a sudden we're thinking about our boss or we're thinking about, oh, my gosh, 
what do I have to get from the grocery store? Or even creating a fight in our head. So many of us do that, like, you know, like create a fight with a friend or a partner or a lover when they're not even around us. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, think or even start comparing ourselves to other people for no reason when we could just be smelling the flowers. So, so many of us have some of this propensity for drama Mm -hmm. in this reflex that takes us away from the stillness, from the ease, from the the opportunity to actually come back further and be more in touch with ourselves because it's vulnerable. Mm. For me and for so many of us, stillness brings us closer to contact with the things we have not processed in ourselves, the feelings that are sort of lingering, the, the internal scripts that we have been trying to ignore, the internal like critic, etc. Yeah. What do you feel like it, the connection between... And I'm specifically talking about, you know, your addiction to drama, but the mm-hmm. connection between because obviously this is like within the nervous system, but then the attached, faulty, limiting beliefs that you held about yourself and how that was connected to the ways in which you created chaos in your life. I mean, the scripts we develop kind of help reinforce our reality. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's always against me as a script. Like no one has my back. And so, you know, I'm going to seek unintentionally and reenact the scenarios where that belief system is proved to be true. It takes a lot more energy to prove an internal script wrong than right. And I'm going to see the world from that perspective. If I walk into a room thinking everyone already hates me, it's going to take a lot more energy to prove that wrong than right. And so I'm going to walk in already expecting that. And that because I'm expecting that, I'm going to find it to avoid some type of cognitive dissonance. So, you know, limiting beliefs and the mechanisms that are part of an addiction to drama go hand in hand. They support each other in that way. They help reinforce the behaviors that help me Go find a scenario that's chaotic and then blame the other person as opposed to recognizing I'm the contributor to that. When you first started to work on these issues, what therapy, was it mostly talk therapy initially? No, it was a lot of meditation. It was a lot of somatics. And Yeah. Um, when, so how did you get exposed to that initially? She was exposed to it in high school. Really? In classes at the university. and Where did I, you grow up? Minnesota. Okay. And uh, there was a class in the dance department that I, you know, I was put in called Body Mind Centering. And it was my first introduction to somatics. And I loved it. It was like, oh, this, this little teaser of an experience of what it's like to come home to oneself. And I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like I arrived at what I was meant to do. And so I followed that. I studied somatics and body-mind centering and a bunch of other somatic modalities for the last 30 years or 25 years. And yeah, it it just, it is our, like somatics, for those who don't know, soma means body. Somatics is the living body as opposed to the mechanical body. And so we are not just a brain being held by a body. We are a full integrated system. Every cell has intelligence. And the way in which our first language is through sensation, through feeling, through breath, through movement, like way before we speak English or Russian or German or Spanish, we are communicating. We are processing the world through the language of sensation. We understand reality through breath, through movement. And that is what's called the implicit. It's our deepest memory system Mm -hmm. operates through sensation, breath, movement. It's also where trauma is stored. It's where our patterns, our behavioral patterns are stored in in this body memory called the implicit. And that's really important to know because talk therapy is only addressing our secondary language, which Mm -hmm. is the thing we learned probably at three to five Really, I mean, yes, we speak some words before that, but really it's it's fully more fully online around three years old. And we can't it's like not speaking very much Spanish, but trying to do talk therapy in Spanish when your native language is English mm-hmm. doesn't really work so well. 
So to do talk therapy, you can't talk your way out of trauma. You can Mm -hmm. only feel your way through it, through the reprocessing, through the rewiring. And that involves coming back to our primal language, which is often lost because it's not supported in our school systems. It's not supported. Like we don't arrive into elementary school and they say, how are you feeling today? What sensations are arising in your body? And what does that have to tell you? (laughs) You know, like, and it's such a big difference to be able to say in therapy, come back into your body and what's present here. What is the quality? What are the textures? What are the colors of this sensation? Because that truly is, again, the language, not only our primal language, but the where, because trauma is stored in the body, that then becomes a language to which we navigate the entry point, the contact and the processing of trauma. So we don't always need to. I think the one thing that can be very confusing for people is if we don't have specific memories mm-hmm. of what yeah. the trauma is, and especially if it's generational or in mm-hmm. the womb. Um, I think it can be a very confusing concept for people to grasp as far as how one actually can just heal trauma that they're not exactly sure what it is through somatic release. Do you want to dumb that down for folks? So let's say we have two different memory systems. We have multiple memory systems, but two main ones. One of those memory systems we'll call explicit. And that has like actual memories of things like, oh, that has a beginning, middle, and end. Like, I remember Mm -hmm. my sister went to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And then we have the implicit, which is how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, those two memory systems hold hands. So we have both the autobiographical memory or the actual narrative, the story with the imagery, the beginning, middle, end, and the feeling, and they're holding hands. Often what happens in trauma is those get split. The hands get pulled apart. So there's an actual split between what happened and how we feel. And the majority of the trauma, like the actual holding, the gripping, the intensity, the freezing, whatever it is that's in our body, is in the hand that is the implicit, that is in the hand of the sensation and the feeling, not of the memory, not of the actual like, hey, then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. So if we go chasing the hand that is like the narrative, we actually miss the actual trauma. So we have to go to the hand that's saying, that's holding the experience. And so that's why it's really important is, is like we very much might not have any actual narrative memory of something, but we hold it in our body. So if you feel a little tension in your shoulders, there's something there. Yeah. It doesn't mean there's a trauma, but there's some type of, you know, one of the things that happens in a stress response is our muscles engorge, they engage in preparation for action. Right. So let's say we never got to action, but that that holding gets locked in there. Now, I don't have to remember what happened 10 years ago as to why they are still tight. What's more important is how do I release that energy that's locked in there? If I had to choose between releasing the energy and going back and remembering exactly why it was there, which one would you choose? I know which one I would choose. So. What was one of the most profound experiences that you had as far as somatic release? Yeah, I I mean, this is a real like an intense one that I don't think is always isn't necessarily the normal. But I was doing this a class in body mind centering and, you know, in that work, it's embodiment practices. So like we're bringing our attention, like letting it land in a particular area of the body. Like if you let your attention land in your breath or you let it land in the weight of your body. Yeah, they're different experiences. And then body-mind centering goes a lot more specific. So we were doing muscles. Okay. You know, and there's a lot stored in muscles. That's what we call muscle memory. And we were doing the muscles of the spine, and something just like popped open. And I cried for about six hours straight. Holy shit. It was in a class, and I... A friend brought brought me a blanket. I cocooned myself and I just fucking wept for six Mm -hmm. hours. And I had done enough work that I was like, this is actually just fine. This is the release that's been waiting for 28 years or whatever I was then. 
at that point. And people would come over at different times and they would just give me some like holding or some containment. And, you know, people brought me water. But I I just cocooned for six hours and just cried. And I have a vague memory. I have a vague sense of what it was related to, but not really. No specific occurrence, but it was just such a massive release. And I'd had severe scoliosis prior to that. And after that, I felt like, I mean, I did. I was taller. My spine was straighter. It was the things I'd been holding on to for so long that had literally been corrupting my posture. Wow. Yeah. So what is it that is going on in that moment? Is it getting to a particular place of connection with that your body knows that it's safe to, to let go? Like, what do you feel like it was in that particular moment that yeah. made it the right time for it to be released? Well, I think you named one of the key words, that there was a sense that there's enough time, there's a space, there's support, there's permission, that there's some elements of safety that are present. It's like the right cocktail, so to speak, of circumstances that, you know, if we had there, we would have not been holding on to what we have been holding on to. You know, if it, what happened to me when I was nine, I have no idea what happened to me with nine. I'm just giving an example. What happened to me when I was nine, if a parent had been able to be present, consistently present, that there was permission to process and cry and, and move through the anger or whatever, if there was time, if all those circumstances had been there, I would have just processed it through in probably 30 seconds, a few minutes, mm-hmm. as opposed to holding on to it for a next 15 years, 20 years until it had built up with such intensity and, and the pressurized system that when it released, it really just kind of erupts. And it's typically not as organized as it could have been when we were younger and in those circumstances, if the time, space, permissions or safety had been there. So I could barely cry for quite a long time. And I would say yeah. that I the tear ducts finally cracked open mm-hmm. about a year ago, which has been lovely. You know, I would start to cry before that. And then it would be like a couple tears and then it would go away and it gets so fucking frustrated. But I, I'm thinking of someone in particular who's listening right now. For those who desperately want to be able to cry, is it about creating that safety in the body? Well... I would say like one of the things about release or discharge mm. or moving through feelings is that it doesn't require crying. That that crying is not the ultimate goal. It can just be a, a literally a movement in the body, like a shaking that could lead to crying. It could lead, which crying is often more of a further release. It's a further discharge of what is being held, or it's an expression, you might say. But you know. Crying is not the ultimate goal. It, it's simply an avenue of expression or release. And there are many other ones like that are available to us. Like I really like shaking practices for that reason, that it can just be more a full body release than necessarily one from the lacrimal glands. When was the last time you went into an emotional flashback? I find that that still happens less and less or... Uh-huh. You know, even the phase of healing where you're just like deeply witnessing it, which yeah. is a shitty part. Which is a crazy of, experience. Uh, no, you're just like, oh, I'm really a fucking mess. I remember saying that to my therapist a couple of weeks ago. I was like, I'm really a fucking mess. She was, and like, you know, uh, and she was like, or you're just highly aware of what you've been doing mm. for so long. And I was like, I know, oh, it's yeah. almost worse in a way. <laughs> That's, I talked to my therapist about that too. It's yeah. worse when you have the awareness of what's going on and you still feel fucking nuts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a pass-through. <laughs> we have to, you know, awareness leads to change. And awareness isn't change, but it leads to change. And so, you know, it, it's a pass-through stage of the many stages of healing. But it certainly does feel worse sometimes when you're like, whoa, I do that? Oh, my gosh. They didn't call me, and so I burned their house down? And and to see like every you know, <laughs> element of that mechanism of that pattern, you know, playing itself out. It's like, oh, oh, God, I, I did that. And I'm still not in full control mm. of doing that. Yikes. Mm-hmm. But and 
that is, again, this is a pass-through stage of healing, of being that aware. We have to be that aware. And open up. I mean, I've had experience recently where I've been able to express that. Like, hey, Mm. when I don't hear back from you, it makes me feel like I want to die. (laughs) Yeah. And that is the repatterning there, the deep repatterning of going, they might go, okay, well, there's, sorry, I'm busy. Like, you're going to have to navigate that. But that is the dance of relationship when it's functional. When it's dysfunctional, it's like, fuck you, you didn't call me back and burning down your house. I don't know why I'm having like Yeah, you're really into this arson shit, huh? Yeah, I mean, like, do you remember TLC? Like, of course. Yeah. Well, I was recently doing karaoke week and did TLC. And so that's why it's on. What'd you do? Scrubs and waterfall. Yeah. Which is like the theme of my life in the last few years of like, don't go chasing waterfalls, which is like, don't go chasing red flags. Yeah. Let's yeah. dive into that some. I'm the queen of the red flag ignorer. Oh, ignore. I'm the queen of red flag magnetism. Like, mm. I'm like, oh, you got some red flags? Yeah. Ooh, that's hot. Ooh, mm-hmm. ooh that is couture, baby. Mm-hmm. I want to wear you and I want to wear your red flags. What's your pattern uh, been? I have dated a lot of addicts, specifically meth addicts. Nice. I know. And people who are unavailable. And then somehow I'm sad and surprised they're unavailable. Are you an anxious attacher? I have dabbled. Mm-hmm. I've dabbled in all the attachment stances. I mean, you know, when someone does not have great boundaries anymore, I become very boundaried. And sometimes it goes to more of an extreme stance of being like avoidant. And when I've dated a lot of people who are unavailable, I'm relatively attracted to them and I keep attending to them. And I think that they like being attended to and cared for. And then, it, you know, but I'm changing all of that. I've decided that's is giving up my addiction to drama. I've decided that that is boring and I will tolerate something better. I will tolerate something more vulnerable and true. Yeah. Where have you been able to see that you've grown in that respect? I've broken up with people. Like when I was younger, I would never break up with people. I would always wait. I mean, I told you I broke up with my partner a lot, but the actual, actual breakup, the first partner I was talking about, I couldn't do it. I couldn't actually walk away. I would wait until it was so bad that they walked away. And so like breaking up with people, I mean like, hey, this doesn't feel good. And I feel good enough about myself to be able to say, this isn't what I want. Breakups. It's funny how we think of, you know, breakups as like a symptom of our healing, you know, being able to break up with someone. No kidding. Yeah. I mean, I'll just. Yeah. What about It was never even a consideration for me in the past. Mm. Like if I'm in it, if I decide I like you after the first few dates, Mm -hmm. I'm in it to win it. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer collecting any new information. Mm. We're making this work for the sake of the kids. We've been, you know, like. This three dates is actually the equivalent of like a 30-year marriage. And I will make sure that this works. Yeah. it's Isn't it such a funny thing to be like, I'm going to go on 20 dates and not make any decisions? No kidding. I'm going to keep gathering information after the second date. What the fuck is that about? And then have the right to decide at any point. Yeah. Like you actually have a choice. Oh my gosh. Agency. What? What? You know, and and that's, you know, as part of any addiction, but certainly an addiction and drama, there is no agency. It's like people might say, like, why are you acting this way? Why are you putting out a birthday candle with a fire hose? And it's like, well, I I don't have any other choice. First of all, this is my reality of what seems like it makes the most sense. But it's like once you're in the the throes of drama and, and chaos and one of the cycles of it, it's like you're rolling down a hill and you just can't stop. Can you explain the connection between self-esteem and feeling safe in the body? Yeah, it's you know, self-esteem requires a self. And if we're disconnected, if we're locked away, if we're from ourself to other people or from ourself to ourself, there is no self-esteem. Like, you know, when people come in, they're like, I want to work on self-esteem. And I'm like, well, what does that mean to you? Oh, I want to feel better about myself. And I'll say, like, how much of yourself do you experience? How much of yourself is present in your body right now? And they'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's confusing. And it should be confusing because, or it shouldn't, doesn't have to be confusing, but it is confusing because there isn't a sense of solidity of self to then have it built up 
to feel like I'm deserving, I'm worthy, all of these things that come with an established sense of presence. What is the somatic that you've coined? Oh, somatic stress release. Mm -hmm. And what is differentiates that? I think one of it is reclaiming what the original philosophy of stress is and utilizing that. So, you know, if you Google stress, right, it's fucking clickbait out there. Mm -hmm. It is delightful clickbait that says stress is the big bad monster in the closet and you will die because of it. And you need to learn how to manage your stress, which is basically a bunch of <laughs> marketing strategies to get you to click in and see the other advertisements because fear mongling grabs your attention the strongest and keeps you there the longest. Now, stress is not a bad thing. Stress is we have something called stressors, which are stimulus, and we have stress or our stress response, which is our fundamental primal process of how we adapt in the world. It is our biological process of adaptation. And that can be really hard for people to understand. They're like, no, 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 no. Stress is what kills you because that's what's, you know, being. But if we actually go back to the person who coined the term stress in his books, what he writes about is that the failure to adapt. Who is that? Hans Seiles. Okay. Seely. Hans Seely. The failure to adapt is what brings disease. The failure to adapt. Our stress system is our process, is the mechanisms that we have developed evolutionarily to adapt. So if there's a ball coming at my head, I can catch it. I can move to the side. I can let it hit me. Probably not the best idea, which would be more of not adapting. But this is the example of like how we, there's a whole mechanism, physiological mechanism that helps with our adaption. When we've been traumatized, our process of adapting gets compromised. But our basic stress process happens in four major stages. First, we get activated. You know, when you're like having some type of stressors present, and by the way, everything is a stressor. Some things are just like in tense stressors and other things are like joyful stressors, mm -hmm. but it's all just stimulus. So the first stage is called activation. You get a little heat, your muscles start to engage, you vasodilate, so there's more things running through your blood. Specifically, energy is running through your blood. It's a release of energy. And people, you know, usually when people are like, oh my gosh, my muscles are getting a little tight, I'm getting a little hot, it's not a bad thing. That's such an important thing. Don't just try to like go, oh, I need to calm down. You don't need to calm down. You need to ride it through. Mm -hmm. Because the next stage in a stress response cycle is mobilization. We go, the activation is the release of energy. Mobilization is utilizing that energy to adapt. Mm -hmm. I move out of the way of the baseball. Mm -hmm. The first stage is I, there's a cascade of energy. The second stage is I'm moving out of the way or I'm going to catch it or I'm going to do whatever, I don't know, I'm going to knock down a tree and then form it into a bat and then hit the ball with the bat, <laughs> whatever it is. The third stage is called deactivation. So, you know, you know, like when you're stressed, you're having a stress response, your jaw gets tight. That's really important. The reason it gets tight is because those muscles, when they are engaged, slightly dislocate your jaw, which compresses on the nerves and creates a numbness in your face. So that if you were to get hit, you would feel it less and you could continue to adapt and navigate the situation. Your whole body's muscles are prepared to respond. So that's where that engagement happens. Deactivation is the stage where we rest and digest, where we're literally relaxing the muscles. The bones come back into alignment. Yeah. And we start to feel more. We start to have the emotions that are involved in that process of adaptation. And many of us try to avoid this stage because we don't want to feel shit. Yeah. And then the fourth stage is the regeneration of energy to keep doing this cycle. This is the cycle of adaptation. If that cycle gets stopped or thwarted, or we don't have the time, space, permission, support to complete it. Go through the whole cycle. Uh huh. That's where we get fucked. That's mm -hmm. when our whole body starts to compensate and we can no longer maintain homeostasis. And homeostasis is the ability to identify how much energy, emotion, 
and attention is needed to action and to adapt. Mm-hmm. So when we don't have that online, that's when we start to get all these weird compensations like autoimmune disorders, sexual dysfunction, etc., emerges from the inability to efficiently and effectively adapt anymore. So my modality of somatic stress release is how do we complete these the cycles? cycle? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, yeah. I will include all of that shit, including <laughs> your book. Thank you. Are you going to write another one? I am currently writing another one. Yeah. Or ChatGPT is writing it for me. Perfect. <laughs> I, wish. I wish. I don't wish. No I kidding. I like writing and I wouldn't, I've never even used ChatGPT or AI. Well, I clearly used AI, not consciously, but. I um, use ChatGPT to write songs. You have? How is it? Fuck. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. I you just say like you give it a, f- yeah. You tell, wow. it, tell it what you want and it, it's great lyrics. Wow, I feel there's a value. Maybe I've seen too many of the Terminator movies. Oh, just I just cannot do it. I'm like, I'm writing all of this. Yeah, we're screwed. Yeah. We're all screwed, <laughs> truly. Uh, but also, like, I, on my podcast, it's called The Gently Used Human, we're doing an episode where I'm going to do a therapy session, and we're going to compare my therapy session to the th- chat GPT doing the therapy session. Oh, fuck See? yeah. So how are you going to do gonna- that? We're going to see who's the better therapist. And I am nervous that ChatGPT is the better. Oh, it's going to happen. So how are you going to do that, though? Are you going to have it? You'll what? You'll have the um, the, we'll have what, a, the paper. Yeah, we'll have a script in... of the client. Nice. And I, I won't know that script ahead of time. And then they will they will basically share that with me and I'll give my response and, and processing practices. And then ChatGPT <laughs> will respond live as well. And we'll just see... Once and for all, who is the better therapist, me or AI? Well, when that episode never comes out, we will know the answer. <laughs> it's true. My <laughs> ego may be like, fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> okay. I would like to think I'm still a little more sensitive and attuned than ChatGPT. But we oh, shall for see. now, but give it a few years. Oh, shit. Yeah, shit. give it a few years. That's so. pretty fun. Well, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for your time and I'll include Thank you your links to, to everything in the show notes so amazing thank you great. so much for having me of course Welcome to Prime Video's culture-rated collection. This is the place where Black is the main character, where we don't jump through hoops just to hear our voice and can fall in love with illuminating documentaries like Giannis' The Marvelous Journey. I'm just a hard worker that's trying to survive. Enjoy the animated series, The Second Best Hospital in the Galaxy. All doctors report immediately. Where we dive into something new like the latest season of Them, The Scare, and the award-winning American fiction. Welcome home, baby. Or add to the experience by Buying or renting the biopic of a legend, Bob Marley, One Love. I want my music to unify people. And add on channels like Paramount Plus and Stars to bask in nostalgia with Beverly Hills Cop. This is the cleanest police car I've ever been in in my life. And BMF. You're about to take over the whole nation. Explore Prime Video's culture-rated collection and enjoy old-school greats and new-school hits. Prime Video. Find your happy place. Restrictions apply. See Amazon.com slash Amazon Prime for details. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.